Hi, this is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I serve as the interim site pastor at Urban Village Church, Edgewater. Urban Village Church does bold, inclusive, and relevant ministry for people who were traumatized by church, people who feel overchurched, and even the non-churched folks. If you identify with any of these signifiers, we're so glad you're listening. Would you consider helping us continue this Jesus-loving ministry in and across Chicago and over the internet? You can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. I'm Nita, and I'm going to be reading today's scripture, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in the wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Erin James Brown. I currently serve as the interim site pastor here at UBC Edgewater, which is where you are. Welcome. Uh, Throughout the month of July, we've been opening our sermon time with a different spiritual practice, with uh, the spiritual practice of breath prayer. Breath prayer is simply doing what you're doing currently, breathing in and out. And adding a meditative element to it, adding some intention to the power of your breath. It's about breathing in God's presence and breathing out negative things the world has taught us or uh, emotions that we're clinging to. And it's something when done in community can be really powerful. And so I'm going to invite all of us to breathe intentionally together. So if you have your legs crossed, maybe uncross them. Set them on the floor. Your hands can be on your thighs, facing downward, facing upward, whatever feels comfortable for you. But make sure that you relax your shoulders. Pull them away from your ears. Relax your brow and your eyes and your mouth. Relax your stomach. And you can keep your eyes open, or you can 
Uh, and you can find a spot, maybe just fixate on it, rest and relax looking at it. Or you can flutter your eyes closed. Wherever you are in your breath, breathe out. And take a deep breath in. And we breathe out together. And a deep breath in. We breathe out all anxiety. And breathe in hope. We breathe out any hatred and breathe in peace. And we breathe out despair and breathe in love. God, your love is so deep. It fills us to the tips of our toes with each breath. And so we ask, God, that you continue to let us show that love to one another, not in boastful, arrogant ways, but in humble ways offering our love to one another. Because you, God, first loved us. We are recipients of your love. So may we also open ourselves up to receive love from one another being a community of caring and sharing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I wonder if Paul was road-weary, experiencing a little travel fatigue. You see, since the scales had fallen from his eyes, he spent his conversion years romping across the countryside, sailing across the seas to reach the edges of the known world. He traveled to plant churches among new people. He shook hands and kissed babies. He posed for photos. He engaged with his base. He wrote letters and then later sent representatives on his behalf. He tilled the soil of people's hearts. He deposited seeds of faith deep in there and then coaxed the stalks of leadership from the earth to grow. He worked pretty darn hard to grow a movement, to start a revolution of love. And he was quite successful. But I like to imagine this success came at a cost in his personal life, in his rest. I don't like to imagine that, I just assume. <laughs> One of his earliest accomplishments was the blossoming of a Christian church in a metropolitan city like Corinth in this post-death and resurrection kind of world. The church in Corinth grew quite quickly uh, pretty, uh, and quite large and was probably one that gave him a surge of pride in its continued existence. But he couldn't stay behind in the day-to-day -day life of the church. No, Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, he was called by the Spirit to places beyond, so he left the community in the hands of those he had trained as capable. He moved on to Ephesus, a smaller town across the sea, to, and entrusted the Corinth church to the Corinthians. But he was a good community organizer. He checked in with his communities, responded to their questions, offered direction to continually help grow the Christian movement as a brand. And so, while Paul was tired from his never-ending work of proclaiming the gospel, he received a lengthy letter from his fellow Jesus followers in Corinth. You see, as they grew, 
They couldn't quite agree on the focus of the direction of their church. Where or how were they supposed to be Jesus-loving, inclusive communities that ignite the city? It seems from this portion of Paul's response, they ask clarifying questions about what to prioritize. Is it better to speak in tongues? Should they all learn the gift of prophetic powers, or does it really matter? Should they just start sharing all of their possessions in community? And Paul, remembering his movement throughout the city streets and building relationships and creating consensus towards a shared vision of God's love for the world, he probably sighed, poured another glass of wine, pulled out his pen, quill, ink, and papyrus. The people of this potential megachurch were arguing about their community, their shared beliefs, and how to embody those beliefs. They also, like many growing organizations, began to experience controversies. The group was divided. So staunchly were they divided about how best to offer grace and accountability that they forgot, probably, the center element of their uniting faith. Love overcomes hate. Peace overcomes war. And somehow, life overcomes death. So to the group Paul wrote, so the group wrote to Paul saying, what about this, what about that? And shaking his head, he reminds them of the things that endure, namely faith, hope, and God's love for the world. Has anybody heard this passage before? 1 Corinthians 13, it's famously read on TV movies from the Hallmark Channel the union of traditionally two people living together and being real with one another. Uh, I don't know about you, the idea of, he starts off with love not being like a clanging symbol or lots of negative images about love. When my spouse and I were first getting married, we were sitting in my in-law's living room uh, at their Bible study group, and everyone was supposed to go around in the Bible study group and tell us an advice about marriage. Don't do that to a young married couple, a young couple getting married. I was struck by as these wise people went around the room, all they could tell us were horror stories about patience and persistence. And as a young, naive person, I assumed, why is everybody a Debbie Downer on this big moment in my life? I've now been married almost. Uh, please God, uh, nine years. Um, and as time has gone on, I realized the endurance of those words that were shared with me around my in-law's living room. It was not about uh, pulling down the joy and my excitement to share my life with someone, but about the reality of living life together. Because, see, marriage is just a microcosm of what we do as a church, which is also just a microcosm of God's kingdom, a little snow globe of what we hope to be. And so Paul's letter is actually not to a happy couple, let's be clear. It's to the whole church, those experiencing some problems, those trying their best to do community together. Our sermon series lately has been on analyzing the power of art, namely musicals. Any musical fans out there? Uh, how musicals communicate the principles of our faith. This morning, uh, we're supposed to talk about Rent. Anybody seen Rent? Love Rent. 
Uh, it's a story which has many like overlapping understandings, like most stories do, about lovers, artists, and outcasts seeking to find hope and shelter in the arms of each other. Rent is about love and tragedy and a little bit about romantic relationships, but it's more than that. It's about making a place for love when others and the world do not love you. It's about when AIDS takes over one's immune system and doctors won't treat you. It's about how the love of a community bathes one's sore skins and kisses one's fevered forehead. In the end, it's about the measurement of love in actions, of love rather than accomplishments or things seen or places traveled. It's about or the amount of time passed because love endures all seasons of life when we work hard at it. So Paul writes about this kind of love, personifying love, using the present tense as if to say, you are love. You don't just do love or act lovingly. Just as God loves you, so you too are to be loved. That's why we say, dearly beloved. Paul seems to ignore their questions about which spiritual gifts are the bomb.com, tongues, prophecy, or charity. Instead, Paul launches into a discourse on the reaches of love and a life loved with God. The theme of this section of Paul's letter is not the love between two people or the love between a polyamorous group of people in committed relationship. Instead, Paul says that love overcomes evil, all destruction, and death-dealing life. The power of love was displayed in Jesus and now continually lived out by Jesus' followers. Love is patient, kind. It is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. This sounds kind of Debbie Downer-ish, doesn't it? It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth because love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so Paul says, here's how you do it. You give it time. You look for similarities in the other person rather than differences. You celebrate the good in others, knowing that it does not diminish your own goodness. You extend grace when grace is not deserved. You hold out for hope for each other despite all the disappointments you love in an untidy, messy kind of way. Love is not just for the people we like, the people closest to us, or the people with whom we agree. Love is meant for those considered our enemies, those misfits, misunderstood, those who are hated by everyone else in society, who are dismissed, demonized, and devalued. Those are the loved. Paul tells the people of Corinth, those struggling to rehearse Jesus' practices in their everyday lives, that, the heart, that their hearts should pulsate in these concentric circles that widen out beginning with small practices of love that grow to include more love, love enduring, love for all, which means y'all. Paul writes to the first Corinthians attempting to practice community with the instructions for a Christian life. Do this and not this, he says. Don't be your act like this. Instead, be an act like this. And I get confused sometimes when reading Paul. Is this just a list of rules and regulations to follow? Follow and obey these things? Is it a self-help book? 
seven steps to a highly effective Christian life? Is it just another online listicle to generate clicks and likes, 10 best ways to show someone you care? No, these are instructions of embodying love. They shouldn't be sanitized or simplified as if to say, do these things and God will like you more. Or do these things and people will like you more and think you're a good person. Or do these things and your relationship will succeed and you'll never have problems and you'll have lots of money in your bank account. What Paul is trying to say to the Christian church, what Paul is actually trying to say to you, to me, to us at Urban Village Church Edgewater, we are to actively participate in God's kingdom. That God's kingdom is embodied and displayed in our world to experience the lives of love. Just as God's kingdom is yet to come, yet to be fully realized, these ways of love, loving each other, helps us to see in the mirror dimly, but soon we will see God's glory brightly face to face. The love that we share helps us know only in part, and then we'll know in fully, as we have been fully known by a God who formed us in our biological mother's wombs. You are beloved children of God. You are infused with love, mercy, and justice. Not only infused, but it kind of ekes from your pores, oozes, so that whenever you come into contact with others, they feel the stickiness of God's hope and in the anticipation of God's kingdom to come. For God's love is genuine, therefore we are to be in authentic honest, genuine, true relationship. We hold fast to what is good. And just as we were created in God's image, we are to remind others of their in inherent goodness, their inherent created in God's imageness. The Apostle Paul does not assemble a list of things. Instead, he instructs that these things are from God and one does these in partnership with God. So God inspires endurance. God orients us towards goodness. God widens our arms, not just to hold ourselves, but to welcome tightly and hold on and hug those who need a hug to embrace just as we have been embraced. I love how Megan said that. It's not just for the people who are cute. It is for the forgotten, the rejected, the cursed, the mournful, the self-righteous, and the really annoying Paul is not writing to those who are entering into committed marriage. No, 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 no. The covenant of matrimony. Paul is writing to those who enter into committed relationship, the covenant of membership, belonging to a community. It's as if to say, using the present tense in all of his verbs, right here, right now, through this bread and this cup, God transforms our lives when we authentically live with one another. When those times you are cradling yourself in an empty bathtub trying to hide your shame from the world, you are still loved. There's a community that wants to love you back. God transforms our lives when we awake each day with a renewed commitment to live peacefully with each other, meaning we show up. When we wake up on a Sunday morning and feel, I'm so tired I've worked so hard this week and I just want to sleep in and yet we still show up. Not just for ourselves to come here and feel the Spirit, although feeling the Spirit is great. Not just because we come here and the music sets a revival in our souls, but we really like music. Not coming just because the preacher says a good word, although she always does. 
No, it's not about us. We show up here because others need to be reminded that we are here, that evil has not won, that God's love remains and abides, that when new people walk in our doors, they need to feel that hug, and so we show up to be that hug for others. We show up because we need to be a reminder. Uh, We show up because we need to be that faith for others, for the people who don't know or can't see God that week, we show up and lift up our voices on behalf of them saying, our father and mother who art in heaven, when they need to be silent, we can speak on their behalf. God transforms our lives through these acts of love. When we show radical compassion, even to those we don't know very well, so that our love may genuinely reflect the love that we have received. It means, though, Just a warning. I feel like a lot of my sermons lately have come with a a warning. It means that we are not always the ones giving love away. Looking like our lives are perfect, always sharing the love. Instead, we have to be the recipients of love. We are to confess our sins and experience forgiveness. We are to banish our loneliness by telling others, I am lost and I need a hug today. We are to get right with God by admitting, I need help to our siblings in Christ. Receiving love is not about being boastful or arrogant, pretending or lying or about, uh, it's about, it's not about hiding our real selves and our pain from others. Because receiving love is messy because it doesn't insist on our own way. Receiving love means somebody's going to wipe our tears and we don't like people touching our face. Receiving love means somebody's going to bring us soup and they don't know that we're doing paleo this week. (laughs) Receiving love means we receive head nods and prayers because those people love us. Receiving love is hard-fought and hard-won when we swallow our pride and tell our truth proudly, that we don't have it all together. This is, the God, this is the love God first showed us. Jesus taught and healed and performed miracles, yes, but Jesus also, also entered people's homes and allowed them to serve him meals. Jesus hugged children, but I bet he was hugged by another when he cried for the death of his friend Lazarus. Jesus shared and received love, so we too are called to share and receive love. We are a covenant community. That means we're committed to getting our lives mixed up, messy together with other beloved children of God to love one another. So we offer grace and mercy to one another because God offers grace and mercy to each of us. We don't pack away our faith and our hope and our love for ourselves out of scarcity worrying that there will not be enough faith, hope, and love for the world. Instead, we open up our hearts and our homes and our community for all to witness and experience the faith and hope and love that endures. We welcome others with hospitality into the love of our covenanted spiritual home because God first welcomed us into family, into discipleship, into abundant, vigorous, untiring love. So we are to be a community even though we're tired of offering untiring love. Will you pray with me? 
O gracious and ever-loving God. You have indeed created us in your image. And so we ask that you look mercifully, mercifully upon us as a community. Because, God, we come seeking your blessing. Just as a couple asks to be blessed in their marriage covenant, we ask to be blessed in our membership covenant to one another. Assist us with your grace. Let us be truly honest, filled with steadfast love, that we may honor and keep the promises we have made to one another. May we continue to embody Jesus in our lives together in order to unite you, God, with all of your creation. Because even you, God, live in community. You don't do it alone. You are with Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in partnership with the Holy Spirit. One God. And so we are one community. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.